Do all of you know what an unsung hero is? Yeah. Webster would say it was somebody who did a great feat, perhaps even sacrificial, but for the most part, it goes largely unrecognized and unnoticed. The idea that heroes should be celebrated in song goes back thousands and thousands of years, right? Really, to the beginning. And you think, because I even think right now, even as I say it, that didn't all of heaven, all the stars sing at creation? But you know, I also remembered David and Goliath. Remember that? After he killed Goliath? They broke out with their tambourines and their songs, and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And they repeated that over and over again, much to Saul's dismay. <laughs> but there are unsung heroes. You know some, don't you? I know hundreds and hundreds of unsung heroes. There's John and Yvonne Macy, right now, living in a container in a refugee camp in Iraq ministering to the Yazidis, a very marginalized and forgotten people. And they're pouring their lives out there for them. Nobody sees. Or how about Stephanie, 69-year-old widow who is on the edge of the jungles in Indonesia, teaching children not only academics, but about the love of Jesus. I know you know lots, too. And for the most part, these people are not being sung about. They are unsung heroes. However, I do believe there are choirs in heaven singing their songs even now. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite verses that I love to share with our many unsung heroes around is from Hebrews 6.10, and it says, God is not unjust to forget or overlook your work that you have done for him, or the love that you've shown him by ministering to the saints, as you still do. And that is something that God does see. He does see, he does acknowledge. His heart is delighted in that unsung uh, work of sacrifice. So encouraging you, too, where there might, you might feel a little bit unappreciated. God does see, and God does appreciate. And what I love about that verse, too, is he said, the love you show him by serving others. Because that's really what it's about, isn't it? It isn't about necessarily getting all that appreciation from everybody else, as wonderful as that is. It is an, it's a labor of love for him. Well, today I want to talk to you about another unsung hero. He's the recipient of this letter, Titus. What do we know about Titus? You know, I have a Bible. It's called the Life Application Bible that has about 135 different personality profiles from Bible characters throughout the Bible. So I just thought, oh, cool, I'm going to go and see what they have to say about Titus. Titus didn't make it. He wasn't there. And I thought, what? And then I saw another uh, thing that somewhere in one of the Bibles said, what we know about Titus. And there were two verses. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? And yet here, Paul is writing a letter to this man, and we know nothing about him. So today, I'm going to invite you to join me as a profiler. <laughs> I have a few scripture passages where Titus is highlighted. Interestingly enough, he's not talked about in Acts, but 17 times he's mentioned in the epistles. So I'm going to take you to these different snapshots, if you will, of Titus. 
And I want you to look at some of the character qualities that he's exhibiting. And then we'll see just how well-placed he was on the island of Crete. So first of all, of course, the one we're familiar with mostly is that little verse in one, Titus 1.4 that we read about, where Paul says, he's his true son in the faith they share. That indication right there from all of what, how that's laid out is that Paul probably led him to the Lord in his uh, journeys and certainly mentored him. But the next passage, you can take a look at it. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I'm going to summarize it. It's in Galatians 2, 1 to 10. And in that passage, Paul describes that after 14 years, including the three years he was in the desert, he comes to Jerusalem, to the bigwigs, and he brings with him Barnabas and Titus. And he's bringing Titus kind of like uh, to showcase. This is what's happening with the Gentiles, because Titus was a full Greek. You remember that Timothy was half Greek and half Jewish, but Titus was all Greek. And so he brings him to Jerusalem and said, God is doing a work in the Gentiles, and we, we seek your blessing as we go out from this church to reach the Gentiles. And in that time, Paul says in this passage here, that false brothers came up to them. And we saw later that this is actually called the circumcision party. Sound familiar? And they came up and said, mm, okay, but he needs to be circumcised. And interestingly enough, in some cases, including Timothy, that was done. But here in this situation, as a full Greek, the call to essentially step in back into a mosaic law ceremony and rite, they stood up and said, no. It said both Paul and Titus stood up and said, no, as a matter of fact, I like the... The verse actually says, we did not yield in submission for a moment. So here they are, kind of the newbies. Paul's essentially a newbie. Titus, absolutely non, not intimidated at all. And they stand up and they said, no, this is not the gospel. This becomes really um, an important situation, a precursor, if you will. If you, a precedent, that's what the word I want. If we say that he has to be circumcised, well then... We've just added to the gospel, and we have to add this to everybody. So they stood strong. And it says in this passage that Peter and John and James affirmed them and said, that's right, and sent them out with their blessing. Well, isn't it interesting? Think about Titus here in this situation. But the next passage I want to read to you is the one that first, a couple of years ago, really piqued my interest in Titus. It says in 2 Corinthians 2, chapter 12, Paul is talking about when he came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. He said, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And I remember when I first read that, I went, what? Who's Titus? I know Barnabas was an encourager, but why was Titus so important to Paul that he actually stepped away from an open door of ministry because his spirit was such, so un, uh, at unrest and left. So that takes you actually to where the story picks up again. Paul, true to himself, <laughs> digresses all the time, as you know, in his writings. And so he doesn't pick up the story again until 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5. And then he talks about when I arrived. Remember, he was going to leave Troas, and he's, he expected Titus to be there. We get that impression. But so he leaves for Macedonia. 
It says, so when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts within, fears with, conflicts without, fears within. So you get this feeling. I actually heard this sermon uh, preached to us talking about um, how missionaries have a lot of emotional angst many times that they themselves don't always acknowledge, but sometimes it actually does keep them from being able to fully minister in a healthy way. And Paul, I love it, he's very honest and very transparent. And he says, we were a mess. Our spirits had no rest. There was conflicts without. We had fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. Now remember, he's talking to the Corinthians. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. So I rejoiced even more. And the context of this is that Paul had sent, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, a really hard, a severe letter, he called it, to the Corinthians of rebuke. And we actually don't have that letter. We've got our first and second Corinthians, but this particular letter, according to the commentary, said that somehow it was lost along the way. It, we don't have it. But Paul said it was a tough one. I mean, we can know that some of what he said in Corinthians was tough too, so this was severe. But interestingly enough, he didn't take that. He sent that letter with Titus. So Titus was the one that needed to bring this letter to the Corinthian church. He was the one that probably had to read that letter to the Corinthians. And he would have been the lightning rod. <laughs> he would have been the one to get any kind of backlash. And so Paul was waiting for Titus to come back with a report. How did they receive that letter? And I love this picture because it's just like us, right? Paul was just like us, just a, a man. And he loved the Corinthian church, but he knew he had to write this hard, hard letter of rebuke. And he was anxious to know how they were going to respond. Are they going to write me off? Is this it? All of my hard work for this church, are they just going to say, forget him? So he was anxious, and he was waiting for Titus to come back. And Titus comes back with great news. He said they not only repented, and you can continue on and see in that chapter 7 how he says it was repentance unto sorrow. It was the real deal. They heard, they received Titus. He said to them later on that thing, he says, you received him with respect. You listened to him, you responded, and you also sent word back with Titus that we love you, Paul. We appreciate what you've done. To the point that Paul says, I was so comforted and I rejoiced. It was absolutely just freed him up again. So there's an interesting picture of Titus, isn't it? That Paul trusted him to take a really hard letter to not only just represent him with words, but he needed to represent Paul's heart, right? He needed to be able to say this in such a way that it wasn't cruel and harsh, but gentle but firm. Again, think about the kind of church that Titus is going to. And then we have another picture in the next verse, or excuse me, the next chapter. And again, our re lesson referred to it. The lesson took us to verse 23, where Paul talks about Titus as his partner and fellow worker. But if you go back a little bit earlier in those verses to verse 16, he says about Titus, you know what? Again, he's talking to um, the Corinthians at this point. He says, you know, Titus has the same heart of love and zeal for you that I have. He loves you guys. 
And so in this chapter, Paul is telling about how he sent Titus and a few other brothers to go to the Corinthian church and all the churches in that area, in the Macedonian area, that were collecting money to send back to the Jerusalem church because the Jerusalem at that time was going through a famine and the ones who were suffering the most were the Christians. And so Paul was collecting monies from all these churches and then they were going to send them back to Jerusalem to help the Jerusalem church. So he trusts Titus. There's money involved here. He sent him, along with the other brothers, to collect that money and he said, Titus is so excited about seeing you again, in essence. He's saying he loves you. He's volunteering for this job. He wants to see you again. He knows this will be wonderful. So he, he sends Titus and these other ones to go. Okay, now our time for profiling. <laughs> That's all we have about Titus. So what do we learn about him? Well, first of all, he's a man of conviction and courage, right? He stood up against the biggies in Jerusalem with Paul, granted, <laughs> arm in arm, but he, was, he knew the gospel. He was convinced of the freedom of the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel. And he stood strong against people who could, could have been quite intimidated by. And he had courage to stand strong. Secondly, he was strong and unafraid, it would appear, of criticism. Or at least he was willing to face the lions, if you will. When he brought that letter to the Corinthian church, when Paul sent him, he knew, Paul knew, that Titus could be the one to get the defensiveness and the anger and the reaction. But Titus was willing to go. He had a heart of love, but he also was willing and able to rebuke sternly those in the church that were in sin. And then the last point, he was a man of integrity. He was trustworthy so that Paul could trust him to handle the monies and not have it disappear along the way or give it away to anybody else. He knew Titus and these other men that went with them were men of integrity. So think about that. Isn't that cool to see? You know from your studies what Crete was like. You know what the church was up against. They were not only up against the false teachers of the circumcision party, that element that was coming in and saying, we've got to add, we've got to add, there's more, there's more. You, if you're really going to be legit, this has got to happen. But he was also in a culture that was extremely dishonest. Extremely dishonest. As a matter of fact, I was reading this um, in my ESV commentary. It said, Crete was proverbial in the ancient world for its moral decadence. The ancient historian Polybius wrote that it was almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Think about Rome and everything else, right? He said Cicero also stated, moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. So this is the man of integrity, the man of courage and conviction, who is coming to bring leadership and pastor the churches in Crete. I was talking, when, talking to Carrie, and she said, it makes me think of Hebrews, or excuse me, uh, Ephesians 2.10, where God has prepared good works for us. God used all of these experiences prior to coming to Crete to prepare Titus for the job that was before him. A hard, it was a hard appointment. 
He was going. So he was going, like I said, he was facing the circumcision laws. He had to, he had to rebuke them. Paul knew that Titus would be able to rebuke them. He had to um, also deal with the sin of the whole culture that needed to be addressed. He needed to be able to choose godly men, and he himself was a good example of what they could look like in the midst of this society. And they were just fledgling churches. These were little churches that were starting up in homes all over Crete. And Paul usually was the one that was able to set up the leadership before he left, but for whatever reason, he didn't have time, he couldn't, so he set Titus to this job. That was his job. He was commissioned by Paul to look for and to put into place good, godly men with the leadership qualities that we've already read about in First Timothy or Second, no, First Timothy chapter three, and they look very similar, don't they? And it's kind of cool because Ephesus was probably where Timothy was was probably a bigger church, and now you've got all these little churches, house churches, and the qualities for good leadership remain the same. Big church, little church, still the same. And so he said, now I want you to go. And the first thing is to do is to set up the leadership in each of these little homes with godly men. And then I need you to shut down the false teaching. And he's pretty uh, businesslike in the way he approaches this. As a matter of fact, I thought it was interesting. One of the commentators said, Paul writes this letter, and you probably noticed it, in a much more curt, authoritative, and businesslike way. He where did it say, yeah, most of his advice is phrased in an imperative mood, producing a sense of urgency. In other words, he's, he's coming right out, and just the way he says it, you can see that there's not a lot of um, room for questioning there. He says, you need to, I'm trying to see where I saw it, uh, this specific word, but essentially he's saying, shut them down. <laughs> Silence them. Do not let them disrupt the families that they're doing this. And he knows Titus can do it. He's seen Titus do this. He trusted Titus to do that with the Corinthians. Not in a mean way, not in a, a hard way, gently, with love, but nevertheless, very directive. The first two sections of the letter, Paul intentionally contrasts the character, the godly character for what he's looking for in the leadership with the ungodliness of both the circumcision party, that's the thing that he brings out so many times, is that the words were there, but the life wasn't there to match. But also, of you're thinking about all these Gentile Christians that came out of that Cretan culture, how much baggage they brought with them, right? But the call to godliness remains the same. There's not a compromise there. Titus was a competent and resourceful leader. Paul trusted him completely to preach the word. He could remain a man of integrity in a place of total deceit. He keeps the word central, he delegates well to godly men, and he can, re men and he can rebuke incorrect teaching. Paul didn't expect him to stay on. If you know, at the end of the book, he says to him, okay, I'm sending these two guys here, and I'd need you to meet me in Nicopolis. Because remember, he was a missionary church planter. He was a missionary pastor. So he came and he was to set things in order, like uh, I think in the Greek word it means to, to set a limb in place. Set things in order, and then establish, you know, get things correct in terms of the teaching, 
but to know that he would be leaving. So it's interesting. Paul in um, 2 Timothy refers to uh, Titus t preaching in Dalmatia. And I don't know if you know this, but Titus actually chronologically um, takes place between 1 and 2 Timothy. And uh, as you know, 2 Timothy was Paul's very last book to write. It was, upon, it was in this imprisonment where he died. So chronologically, Titus was actually written before that. And he was setting talking to Titus when he was in Crete. But when he was there talking to, about Titus in 2 Timothy, he said he's in Dalmatia. And that's where, I don't know where Dalmatia, I always think of Dalmatian. <laughs> but I looked it up, and it was just part of that you know, Greek um, area. But he went to evangelize and to establish churches. And that's the last word we hear in the scriptures. Now, church history says that Titus came back to Crete and that he evangelized all the islands around Crete but that ultimately he died in Crete and was buried there, and they have lots of grave markings and things like that to, to, for him there, but he died at 94. He lived a long, long life by their standards back that time and ours too. 94 years of age and he died. So there he is, our unsung hero. I hope that as you go into your studies in the next three chapters, um, some of these characteristics. I prayed that the Lord would help me to represent him correctly because, you know, it's easy sometimes with profiling to, to read into things. But honestly, I looked at these passages and I think, wow, he was a strong man. He was a man of conviction. He was loyal to the gospel and to the Lord and to Paul. And he was trustworthy. So as you take, go into your study, think about this recipient, this man who... Uh, for the most part, is really not spoken of much in Scripture. And I hope you're encouraged in your own studies, but also as you look to your life and say, Lord, I, what qualities do you want to develop in me, too? Because we're all leaders, right? Even if we're leading grandchildren, we are leaders and influencers. And so to ask the Lord, show me where I need to grow and keep me in a place where I can be a good example. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us this little glimpse into a man that you know very well, to a man who's with you right now. And it will be really fun to meet him one day in heaven and to ask him questions and to find out where Georgie was really wrong. <laughs> but just to really um, be able to even thank him for his faithfulness to a very difficult position. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful, and that no matter what you call us to, you are faithful, that you will take all of the experiences that we've had, and you will redeem them, and actually you help us to use them in what you're calling us to today, and tomorrow, and the next day. I pray, Father, that we would have eyes open to see you in our situations, and in the circumstances, even the difficult ones, and to thank you. Thank you for this time to be in the Word. I pray that you would open our eyes to understand and to see you, first of all, and then what you're asking of us. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.